Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. You can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. And before we get started, I wanted to send my uh, heartfelt condolences to the Van Peebles family, to uh, Mario and family for the loss of his beloved father, the legendary Melvin. Van Peebles. So I woke up the other day with lyrics to a song as my first thought. I had watched Brian Chesky, founder of Airbnb the night before, discussing the massive cultural shift as a result of the pandemic and how Airbnb is evolving to meet the new reality in the travel business after seeing business drop by 80% at the start of COVID. That led me to think about how we adapt to change and what businesses have to do to not be caught flat-footed and the risk of becoming obsolete in these rapidly changing times. The lyrics, everything must change, nothing stays the same. Everyone must change, nothing stays the same. The song was written by Bernard Iger and first recorded by Quincy Jones in 1974 on his Body Heat album. The song, of course, Everything Must Change. Stopping by Corner Table Talk today is a young chef who recognized a shift or a change in what he wanted to offer his customers. For his first solo venture, he landed on a concept that reflects the lyrics in that Quincy Jones recording wrapped in a world music palette and sprinkled with a dash of hip hop poetry. That guest is Chef J.J. Johnson. I first became aware of Chef J.J. when Chef Alexander Smalls and his business partner at the time, Dick Parsons, handpicked Chef J.J. to helm the kitchen at the much anticipated and since award winning Cecil Restaurant, opening in conjunction with the rebirth of Minton's Jazz Club in New York City's Harlem in 2014. Before the Cecil opened, JJ and Alexander took a trip to Senegal and West Africa, and that trip impacted both the menu at the time for the Cecil and ultimately Chef JJ's approach to cooking. In 2019, Chef JJ struck out on his own, opening his super popular field trip in Harlem, where, quote, Rice is culture, end quote, and is described as a, quote, community-based dining experience that celebrates culture through the shared experience of rice, end quote. Through his vision, he is changing how we think about rice. This past year, despite the headwinds of a global pandemic, Chef JJ expanded his field trip concept with a second location on Long Island City and a third field trip located at one of the most prestigious addresses in New York City, Rockefeller Plaza. To add fuel to the rise in prominence of African-American culinary professionals are changes in the gatekeepers who are determining coverage, resulting in opportunities for African-Americans that in the past were elusive. Chef J.J. is a James Beard Award winner, best author and nominations for Best Chef and Rising Star Chef in New York City. Forbes and Zagat selected him 30 under 30 and winner, Best New Restaurant of the Year and Esquire Magazine. In 2021, Nation's Net Restaurant News added Chef JJ to their power list. He's recognized as one of the country's emerging culinary stars, and he's added TV personality to his growing resume. Chef JJ, it's an honor to have you, man. Welcome to uh, Corner Table Talk. 
Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks for that amazing uh, intro and love the song reference. Uh, you know, music and food are something that I believe go together really well. Uh, and I never thought about that song being related to me, uh, but it was a perfect <laughs> one. So thank you. Yeah, my man. Thank you. Well, well, we'll dive right in then to our short order questions. And my first one of those is what is in heavy rotation on your playlist these days? What are you listening to? Oh, wow. You came right for me in the beginning. Wow. <laughs> Uh, heavy rotation is, uh, I think there are three artists right now. Wizkid is one with his Afrobeat music and how that is. He just has that mark, that, that music exploding. And I love Wizkid. I think Justin Bieber is having a moment right now in his life. He really found himself and I respect that. And that you can see it in the music and his image that he's putting out there. He's not really worried about the people on the outside anymore. And, you know, I love Drake. Uh, I think he's one of those guys that just, don't get enough credit for what he does. And then I always lean to hip hop, 90s hip hop and R&B. If you walk in a field trip, you will feel that music uh, coming through. It's just nostalgic for me. And I think some of the best music, uh, it, that, that, that era of 90s has music uh, had a moment and uh, has fueled what hip hop and R&B is for the future. So I commend a lot of those artists in that era. Yeah, no question, man. I, you know, your, your comment about Justin Bieber is an interesting one to me coming from, you know, yourself as a chef, as an artist, you know, and getting kind of outside of the box in terms of what people think you should do and kind of focusing on what you think you should do. That, that kind of strikes me a, a, a note here with what you did with Field Trip. Is, is there some connection there yeah you know it's really hard as you grow as a, as a person i think or you grow as a chef um you know cecil for me was the first place i held the kitchen i poured a lot of sweat and tears in there was like super focused on that didn't worry about anything on the outside and just wanted to prove to people that i could cook really good food um i remember telling alexander and, and mr parsons before we opened hey guys if it's not working out in the beginning you can just let me go just tell me it's not working out i, I will understand i appreciate you taking this risk but i'm gonna put it i'm gonna give you it my all and when i left there it was kind of hard because it was like do i keep cooking this food do i do an iteration of it I found myself in this food. Do I let it go? Uh, but I always remember people saying to me was, you know, I wish there was something a little bit more affordable, JJ, that we can have uh, in Harlem, somewhere I can eat every day. And I never thought the food was that expensive at, at the Cecil. I took a risk with it with one singular ingredient that I feel like when I traveled the world uh, to many places is, is like the ultimate connector. I, I learn about culture through rice. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to express that. And I felt if you can make it in Harlem, you can make it anywhere in the world. You know, that's how I look at it. And I look at black culture and you look at it, everybody has come through Harlem. They've had an impact somewhere. And I wanted to kind of prove that. And I mean, people doubted the Harlem location heavily when I was talking to investors, peers, even, even today, people think it's like crazy. There's only a couple of folks that actually understand the community and say, oh, wow, you're able to do that kind of revenue there. Like that's a, that's a tough core. That's a tough corner there, JJ. There's nothing else there, but it was just paying homage to a community. I think that deserves to just have something a little bit better to eat or have an option to eat a little better. Maybe, maybe I see Justin Bieber and I'm like, hey, you're starting to find your stride. Cause it's hard when there's so much going on that you start to look left and right. And you're like, well, I could be doing that. But I can also be doing that. So, yeah, I'm always finding myself and I use food as that vessel. And we're going to come. We're going to talk uh, quite a bit about field trip because I, I just love the concept. But uh, let's let's uh, buzz through a couple more of these short order questions. So tell me, JJ, what's your footwear at work? What's on your feet? Uh, I'm always wearing some type of super colorful sneaker. 
Uh, it goes between a Nike, a Converse, uh, and I and I have these gold Pumas that I wear when I show up to events. So gold Pumas, Ooh. yeah, I don't Curious know where that is, <laughs> but I wore them last night. So that's <laughs> <laughs> all right. You can get away. You can pull that off. I can see that. All right, weekday breakfast. Ooh, weekday breakfast. Uh, oatmeal with my kids. Raisins, always, cinnamon, anything going yeah, on? Yeah, it's always, um, I use banana as the base for sweetener. Um, and then I build from that. I try to introduce my, my children uh, through local produce, but what's in season. So I think uh, we had a little bit of like blueberry, banana, apple, cause I, you know, and then, you know, there's still some stone fruits around. So I'll, I'll throw in some stone fruits in there. But yeah, oatmeal is a big play, big part of my household for breakfast. That's a good one. Best live musical performance that you've seen. I got to give D nice. I saw him in Brooklyn. Ooh. He, he crushed it. Um, I, it. It's exciting to see what he's, what he's doing and how, how he's doing it. Yeah. He blew up last year, man. It was a lot of fun watching, watching that happen yeah. for him. All right. Tell me your favorite spice of the moment. My favorite spice is cinnamon. It, it, it just rocks with me. You can use it savory or sweet. So cinnamon is it for me. Yeah. My wife and I put, uh, you know, we do a little French press in the morning and I sprinkle a little cinnamon in that. Every morning with my coffee, man, I'm, I'm feeling you there on the cinnamon. All right. It's date night in the city. You got babysitter. Where are you and your wife going and what are you having for dinner? Ooh, so we're definitely not going below 59th Street because my wife refuses to waste time in a car or that much time in, on the train. So I'll tell you guys that but we're probably just hanging out in Harlem because we, we want to support the community as much as it supports us. But you'll catch us. You'll catch us at um, what's the place? Uh, there's a place called um, Oso. It's a Mexican place up by City College. That's really good. They do a really good job. Mm -hmm. Small Mexican spot. Nice margaritas. Uh, nice hand pressed tortillas. So you, you catch us there. Okay. All right. So um, last one of these. Who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? And if you're cooking, what's on the menu? Oh man, I gotta say the Obamas. They really love food. I think the impact they have on the culture, definitely rice is at that dinner mm -hmm. and probably rice in multitudes of different ways. Uh, and you're going to see oxtails there because I love to cook oxtails and we'll probably sip on uh, some really good Añejo tequila uh, from time to time with the orange peel. I like it, man. I like it. I can only imagine your braised oxtails. So I'm, I'm right there. All right. So let's jump in. I want to talk about field trip. I, I really love this concept, Chef. Fast casual, I think, is the category I would I would put it under if, if it needs to be categorized. Lean and mean. You know, it's tight, interesting menu of composed bowls, which I actually prefer than to having to go in and, and select my own off of a big board. This concept, as I alluded to, speaks to the changes in what people are eating and the story behind the food, rice being the focal point, streamlined service. Can you break down the concept a bit for us and the inspiration? Uh, so I'll, I'll start from the backside. Uh, yes, fast, oh, from the front. And fast casual is a category, 100%. Inspiration is that we all grew up on a rice dish or a rice grain, depending on where we are in the world. The big thing here is to bring back rice farming in the right way. I've done extensive research on rice farming and uh, how that how that was a gold crop for America through black culture. And all the rice grains on field trip are granddaddy or grandma rice grains of the world. They're freshly milled grains. They're not we're not just go calling and getting white rice. We have farmers that we work with that are, are, are freshly milling rice for us kind of to spec 
uh, the same way we get our proteins. And then that's what we're cooking with. We're not pushing that in people's faces like, hey, this rice is good for you. But we let people know there's no bleach or enriched grain. So that's kind of the base point. Mm -hmm. And then looking at that rice and then developing the flavors around it. So, you know, we have Texas brown rice, you know, doing a, a little bit of Tex-Mex dish with braised beef, braised brisket, and uh, a little bit of hoisin sauce, I mean, peanut sauce, and and um, and, and spicy black beans. And the, the the real thing here was I wanted to make composed dishes. I, I got tired, same thing you said, Brad, I got tired of going into places and I'm making something and then I'm eating it and it's terrible and I don't want to go back. And then I hear these horror stories like, you know, 30% of our meals are brought back because people don't like it and we have to remake it for them. And it's something they made for people that they, that they chose. So, and when I looked at all the big brands in the world, they're all super composed to spec and be at a consistent level. So I wanted to take people on a field trip to the places I've been, uh, potentially meshing some cultures together. So, you know, the pineapple black fried rice is from the time when I was in Singapore and then seeing the peri-peri sauce from West Africa, similar to chili crab, right? That you would see in Singapore, same style of sauce. Uh, and then putting that over salmon, something somebody wants to eat every day. And then from there I was like, okay, so what protein goes in this bowl? What vegetable goes in this bowl? And when I first started, Mishama Bailey came into the restaurant. She was eating. She's like, JJ, this is good, but I don't feel you. Something is missing. And I'm like, what are you talking about, chef? She's like, yeah, these vegetables, like, are you using these vegetables for cost? Or these vegetables you want to put in the bowl? So I took a step back and I said, well, I would, I love sauteed collard greens. And I put sauteed collard greens in the bowl. I call it wok vegetables because we make it in the wok. And, um, and it related, started to relate to the community. People were like, ooh, I can get collard greens, they're not braised. So I would, I'm using like the, I'm, when I say cultural dining, I'm using the culture or things to really get people to understand and to get to this good for you moment. And I wanted to disrupt the neighborhood that doesn't get that option, right? I wanted people to say, will I eat at Popeye's or will I eat at Field Trip? Will I go to Wingstop or will I go to Field Trip? Will I get to McDonald's or will I go to Field Trip? Will I go to the deli? Will I go to Field Trip, right? So. And, and in a neighborhood like that, it takes in a neighborhood like Harlem it takes a little bit of time because of trust. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I didn't think about. I just thought about well, this will be good and people will come. So yeah, the baseline is really, you know, freshly milled grains, global flavors from around the world. And hopefully you can relate to something on the menu because you've traveled there or you grew up with that flavor. Right, right. I mean, it just sounds delicious, man, as you're describing those composed plates. And I and I just wanted to reemphasize how how key a component of your concept. I think that that is for me personally, I, I just really enjoy the thought that goes into a composed plate if I'm ordering it from a, you know, eat in a, in a fast, casual environment even. So, you know, in terms of the neighborhood for you deciding to open in Harlem, obviously the Cecil was located there too. And, and, um, you know, Harlem is home, but, you know, finding the right space, choosing exactly the right corner, you, you're thinking through this concept, you're starting to think of some interiors, a layout, a style of service, right? What spoke to you about the location that you ultimately landed on? So I left the Cecil landlord in Harlem called me the day after said, I got a space for you. You need to come here. And I was like, okay. Uh, and at that time I wasn't going to open in Harlem. I wanted to open up downtown. And I was like, um, all right, come check it out. It was a beautiful space. He had three spaces. And I really wanted this one space literally was like $2,100 a month in rent. And I had a arc, I had a designer friend. Did you say 2,100? $2,100. <laughs> it was, it was, wow. they classified it as like 700 square feet. Mm -hmm. right? 
And I was like, okay, if somebody doesn't walk through the door, I can figure out how to afford this. You can, can live there. there. <laughs> Put a sleeping bag in there and live there. Exactly. <laughs> but when we measured the walls, it wasn't ADA compliant. So I had to go and say, okay, let me get closer to the train station here. And I took another space, but I didn't really want a big, big space. So I took a space that was 1,100 square feet on the top, 400 on the bottom. But this guy called me and, and said, you know, we want you. And I didn't take, I didn't sign that lease for about a year and a half, right? Because then I had the space and then I had to go out and find the money and convincing people for a fast casual restaurant in Harlem. You know, the first person I went to was, of course, Dick Parsons. Hey man, you want to write me a check? Uh, this isn't a lot of money for you. <laughs> can you do it? And in the, in the beginning, he was going He was going to be the lead investor. He said we can use his name, which I, I appreciate to this day. And then once I got uh, an investor, he said, well, you're good now. You don't need me. Like I got a bit, another uh, kind of lease. Oh, you don't need me. But I knew that my family lived in Harlem and they would at least be my customers. I knew that some of the customers from Cecil would come because they would hear I was open a spot there. And they would come. So I was like, okay, I will have some people coming through the door and I'll have some support. Without Harlem, I wouldn't be who I am, right? The people really getting behind me in Harlem uh, is, a, is a true special moment for me. And I look back, look, thinking about music, right? Jay-Z has Brooklyn. Diddy has Harlem. Like Harlem got behind. Like all artists, you know, have a moment or a community that gets behind them and then pushes them to the top. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to fail, I'll fail here with, with the people here because then that's, it just will feel right. It won't feel like, oh, you picked the wrong corner, you picked the wrong spot. And then for me, it was like, I'm not spending all this money on interior. It's the first location. I'm a bootstrap. I'm going to be really cheap. You know, I remember the guys telling me to drop the to drop the ceilings for $40,000. I was like, well, just put some spackle up there and it'd be good. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody's going to be in here looking at the beautiful ceiling, right? Or the floors are just the original floors that we, we, we kind of sanded down. I kept it really, 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 really tight and said, let me believe in the food. And then as you go through the process, then you start to say, hold on. If I, I didn't really know to look at uptown, downtown side of New York City. I didn't think about the flow of if you're on the uptown side, this is what you get at these times of days and this is what you get. So I really should have opened up on the uptown side of the street because we would have got a bigger of a lunch crowd and the dinner crowd. If I open on the downtown side of the street, I should be open for breakfast because everybody's going that way super early to get to work. I didn't think about those things until the place was open. And that's why I'll say sometimes you don't really know who you are as, a, as any business, at least six months in. You don't even know who your customer is. And we, we morphed and changed things so much through the time to just be relatable uh, to the people. You know, JJ, you touch on so many things there. And I, and I just want to illuminate a couple of points. You know, as a chef... You stepped into the entrepreneurial, you know, uh, you put that hat on and, you know, the, the negotiating of space and rent and figuring out the dynamics of a space and uptown, downtown, high ceilings, low ceilings, ADA compliant, you know, all of those things are not necessarily things someone steps into when they're just going for a job, right? They think about how much I'm going to earn, you know, maybe what's on the menu and how I can contribute to this concept. But as the owner operator, you have all that stuff to consider when you're launching. So here you are, you're launching a new idea uh, in Harlem. And one of the things that struck me, I know you, you know, you said you were very budget conscientious and, and of course, you know, I, I've never done a project and not been, but I like the simplicity of the, the design. It works. I mean, it has kind of a, an Asian almost aesthetic 
brick and, and blonde wood. And I think it kind of gets out of the way and lets the food kind of be the, the main event and the experience. Is that kind of what you envisioned? So listen, the brick wall, we never knew the brick wall was there, Brad. Dude, my, I had my uncle there for me one day, just watching the guys do construction. And somehow the, the, the general contractor leaned into the wall and it broke a little bit. And when they, when my uncle was there, he kind of looked into the, to there and was like, oh my God, there's original laid brick. And he called me. He's like, don't put that design on the wall. You have brick walls here. That's a winner for you. You're in Harlem. People will relate to you. And I was like, okay, uh, let me come there. So like hustle there the next day, these beautiful brick walls. So we ripped down and the, and the whole, the, actually that whole location had brick, the building didn't even know there was brick there. So we, we kept the brick. We had to fill in some places, but it was like originally laid brick walls. And funny enough, that space that wasn't 88 compliant, a boost mobile took that space a year later and they broke, there was a wall there. That was a partition wall. It wasn't the original wall. So I could have had that space, you know, so you sometimes you got to dig a little bit deeper. But yeah, the, you know, the, 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 the wood was this light wood. We had the brick wall kind of played off the brick. Um, and actually the design shifted in the middle of the, the middle of the project to become, to go with the flow really, uh, which was something that made me very nervous uh, through the process. But yes, it, the food was there. Would I design it different? 100% because now you work in the space and you know what you need and mm -hmm. this should be over here and that should be over here or the drains are over there. You should have put all, you know, so you think about those things, but I think that's part of the process. It, it, uh, yeah, it definitely is, man. And I want to, I want to touch on that a little bit when we talk about the other locations, because uh, I, I just want to ask you what you, what you might've done differently in those places. But you know, I think you you bring up another interesting note there, JJ. You know, when you when you poke around when you're in a space, we did a nightclub in 2000, uh, 2000 in Hollywood called the Sunset Room, and we took over an old film and camera supply store, it was twelve thousand square foot space, and the ceiling was you know maybe fifteen feet high, but from the outside you could see this dome, and I was like, man, this, it looks like a lot more, you know. So we started knocking out the panels, and there were these beautiful bow truss ceilings above wow. the drop ceiling, which we ended up fully exposing. So, you know, you learn as you go along, man, and, and you poke open the holes in the walls, you poke open the ceiling, and, and you never know what you find, man, and hence your, uh, your brick wall. So um, just getting a little bit deeper into the concept. So the size of your location typically is about 1,100 square feet. Yeah, the size of the location is typically 1,100 square feet. We don't need it. We don't need any more. We can we can do it with a little bit less. Overall, we have a basement downstairs with 400 square feet. So in total, it's about 1,500 square feet. I see. And is it majority dine-in or takeout? After the shift, I would say now it's about 60% uh, takeout, 40% dine-in. Is that what you anticipated or? When we started, it was 80% dine-in, 20% takeout. Wow. A, a big shift mm -hmm. uh, of it. And, uh, but also for me, it, that's a good thing, right? Because potentially you're eating it with us in one time and maybe you're getting delivery from us two times in the week. So delivery for me, I know a lot of people look at it as like, a, you don't want that. It hurts. No, I, I want to deliver on all the platforms. Yeah. Uh, because it's all different customers. Your uh, top selling menu item and tell me a little bit about your beverage program. So top selling menu item is the salmon with the pineapple black fried rice. Uh, it's an item that was a low-selling item because most people haven't had black rice in their life. 
Um, and when you eat black rice, it's nuttier, ha- a little harder. I always think about that when I talk about this, this guy comes in from the neighborhood, he gets his salmon, he's excited, he eats the black rice outside, he spits it out of his <laughs> mouth. He's like, this is trash, like screaming at his friend. I come outside and I'm like, hey man, let me get you something else. He's like, you didn't tell me. I'm like, no, 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 it's black rice, it's harder. So, it, you know, this educational moment, and then when people learned about it, then it started to. So yeah, that's our number one and then our crispy chicken. But the real number one seller is the crab pockets. People will fight us for it. They're these little crab wontons, kind of like a crab ragoon filled with uh, house-made cream cheese, real crab meat, and then a dipping sauce. So, um, And then the beverage program, we have a dragon fruit lemonade because you know people love lemonade, but it's very, um, it's not a sweet lemonade. It's refreshing. We have a green tea and then... We were always in search for a second drink uh, that we make, and then we make a house-made sorrel. Uh, and I think over the course of time, we will build out a, a larger beverage program of house-made drinks. And then inside, in, in the Harlem location, we have a beer and a wine license. So we sell sake, we sell uh, rice beers, we sell um, rosé, um, we have a sparkling tea called Root that's really delicious that people love because their flavors are hibiscus and all these different type of flavors. Dapper Dan comes in there all the time for the tea. But the biggest thing that I have to get comfortable with is like people want soda and people ask for soda so much. So I look for sodas that are made with 100% real sugar. So we are, we're going to be rotating a soda program until we really find the best bet because people come in and look for it. Um, and if I can do that, then and get them the real sugar that I did my thing, but it's a missed sale opportunity for us. Yeah, in yeah. There. But I don't uh, see so, a Coke machine in there anytime. No, so, no, no, that's no, not happening. Machine. You'll see a maybe. You'll see maybe a glass Pepsi bottle, right? Like uh-huh. old school, uh-huh. because that's just with the theme, right? It works. It fits in. Uh, it works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, I, you know, I, I love how you're on the front line of this test market, you know, and I know how our folks can be. I can just imagine seeing that brother out on the sidewalk with that black rice. This rice ain't cooked. And, you know, you as concerned as you must have been. But, uh, you know, man, I mean, you're bringing people around and it, and it's really timely. You know, I, it's I mean, we have to start eating better at some point. And that's not to say that everybody's got to become vegan or vegetarian, but I like the term of flexitarian, and I also like the idea of being more mindful of what we put in our bodies. Yeah, it's a great thing to see, right? Like, I think there's two things that happen at at field trip. You get the moms or the nannies in the strollers. You get police officers and firefighters. You get the hood. But the best part is when they're all, everybody's in there at the same time, and people that would never have a conversation with each other are now having conversations, Right. Like they're like breaking instead of breaking bread, they're breaking rice. It's like broken rice. And they're having these conversations. And for me, that's what brings me joy when I'm in there. Uh, that's like, OK, this this is why this is why it's a community based restaurant. This is a very safe space for everybody. Um, but, yeah, I mean, people are coming in. People are eating better. People are trying to eat better. People are asking questions. Mm-hmm. And especially in the Harlem market, people are trying to understand. What do you mean freshly milled rice? I go to a supermarket. How do you cook your collard green like that? Why aren't you braising it? Why did you change the vegetables? You know, people are asking questions. Oh my God, you make all the sauces in house? You don't buy the barbecue sauce? No, we make that, right? So, you know, that's a beautiful thing. And hopefully that will help as we grow potentially in markets that look like Harlem, uh, places like McDonald's and Popeye's, and those guys will start to feel it and say, hold on, what's going on here? This field trip is starting to steal 1% of our market share. 
2% of our market share in these neighborhoods because I think a lot of people don't realize and when I'm talking to my peers, right? The sweet greens, the chops of the world, they get nervous to go in this market. And I'm like, you think that Domino's and these guys wouldn't go in this market if they weren't making money? They're making hand over fist. That's what's very important for me as we keep pushing on the front lines, introducing, because we are on the front lines, we are convincing people are building trust in a neighborhood that gets nervous when they see something new pop in and then they don't know, they might not know who, who is behind it. But, you know, the artisanal approach that you're taking, man, is just so right on the money, you know, and, and that you are the spokesperson for the concept. It comes from you. Um, I just can imagine that, you know, that really resonates with the neighborhood. And, you know, if you can make it in New York, you can make it in anywhere. But if you can make it in Harlem, <laughs> you can make it anywhere in the galaxy. You know? <laughs> so, um, you know, you're a busy guy, man. You opened a couple of restaurants, you know, pandemic headwinds and all of that. I mean, all of the, the challenges that we read about, hear about restaurants hit. I know you, you know, did a lot of meal delivery service and work with hospitals and, and you know, really stepped up to do what you could during the pandemic. But as you know, we emerged from that and then there was the Delta variant and a whole nother set of rules and now vaccine mandates and you know what have you. So this the stop and start, Chef, the the hiring challenges, the rising costs, you're opening a new location, your rock center, you know, office vibe is much different these days than the neighborhood vibe. Just talk a little bit about some of these challenges that you've confronted this last year and a half. You know, during the pandemic, Harlem was really behind us, right? Coming in, eating. I remember guys coming up to me like, yo, I know you the owner because nobody would come here this early and then close the gate at night. Thanks, guys. You know, we're going to come in here and, you know, give you our last 10, our last $15, which was great. Now, I got tired of reading stories about like the big brands taking up real estate as small businesses were closing. And I said, well, let me go. I'm a, I'm a risk guy. Let me try to take this risk. Tishman Spire is, has these two amazing locations. They're going to give me this sweetheart deal. They need food service in there. We ha- I have a little bit of money in the bank. We, I, let me try to make this work. Uh, and I'm hopeful thinking it's got to get better. These big buildings have to, offices have to come back. If they don't come back, was New York is, you know, Rockefeller Center don't come back. There's no Midtown, you know? And for me, this last six months, like the spring and the summer going into fall is going to, is hard now because there is no office. There's no office in Long Island City. There's no office in Rock Center. There's nothing there. There there is no busy streets. You know, I ask myself, where are the people? Where where are they? Are they just, they can't all just be in suburbialville? I call it in Connecticut, Westchester, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. I know those restaurants are doing better because they're around, but where are the people? And I am more nervous now than before because there is no PPP. Mm -hmm. There is no, I I didn't get restaurant relief fund, right? And New York, I know they, New York, they want to be ahead of the curve. They don't want hospitals to go back. I don't want hospitals to be filled again. I want people to get uh, vaccinated because I want them to be health, protect themselves. But we have to figure out how to get the economy back. And nobody's putting that plan together. The mayor right now is not saying, well, okay, we're going to do this. And then this is going to occur. And hopefully this will happen. Because if there's no restaurants in New York City, there's there's no jobs Mm -hmm. for people. So it is a very concerning moment for me. Uh, seeing having a business at a community, our community location, and then coming down now into two locations that are in corporate America. And, and you have to rely on that because that's the community and that community is not there. And there's so many restaurants open that the density is crazy. The density of restaurant versus the density of people. 
So now you were all battling for the same dollar. Yeah, that that I can only imagine, man. And, and you know, thinking back as you're talking to the conversation I was listening to with the founder of Airbnb, you know, whose business dropped 80 percent. I mean, there was talk, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic that Airbnb would be done and they were just about to go public. And, you know, what he has found is that his the, the, the folks who are renting Airbnbs, their business has come back now. And but it's come back differently because folks working remotely now, instead of renting a night or two here and there, are renting for a month, a few months at a time. So he's pivoting his business to target a different kind of customer. As you describe what you see in Midtown, obviously, you know, New, New York's got a lot riding on, you know, no disrespect, but, you know, you've got a restaurant, New York's got an entire city, you know, and the mayor to, to be concerned about. But you as a small business person, your concerns reflect the larger concerns. Where are the people? Where's the business? What's going to happen? So what are you thinking when you look, when you see that? What do you, if you have to look down the road, are you thinking residential areas are a better bet? For something like what you're considering in terms of growth? New York has these like funky pockets, right? Like Columbia University, students are there. You can see the uptick in the neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. You can see in the morning time, breakfast places are packed again. The bagel line is there. Restaurants and bars are full. So it's like, okay, Columbia University. That's a pocket. Kids go. Restaurants still were able to survive. There's not that many closures. But when they come back, it explodes. And they're coming back. So, okay, check. Can we get in this area how can we figure out how to maneuver? We're not going to pay $52,000 a month in rent. I'm going to tell you that. But how can we potentially put ourselves around there? So, yeah, you need to find this like mixed use space, hospitals, mm -hmm. right? An area with hospitals in it. You got people, those people are going to work. They're, they need to eat lunch and dinner. So what those areas are doing well. Um, and then when you get into this real residential, I you know, I look at Harlem as a residential area. So we kind of know that. And I think that reflects same kind of income level of some parts of in the suburbs where we would go to if or, you know, or if we were to go into New Jersey, Newark, East Orange, it, that kind of reflects that area. So but it is a mixture of, I think, for us, college neighborhoods, right, because they are built with residential and college. And then there's probably a hospital there. So it's like a trifecta. Mm -hmm. And then when we get into residentialville, I think it's this uh, it's a diverse neighborhoods. Right. They're not, you know, when I look, when I think about places, I'm thinking about like Yonkers or outside of Yonkers. I'm thinking about the Allentown, Pennsylvania, Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking things of like that when I'm looking at stuff or D.C. I'm thinking of Howard University area, you know, mm -hmm. so places and people that understand culture and want to be, have an eatery that they can say, that's my place. We support that. Uh, and, and that's how I look at it. I'm nervous for downtown, midtown New York, Wall Street. And I, I believe that there's going to be like this sector of you get a pay rate if you want to work at home. You get a pay rate if you want to work uh, flexible in home. And you get a pay rate if you're in the office. And I'm hearing things like 2023 when we'll see uh, New York back. But I don't know. What do those buildings become, Brad? Are they vertical right. farms? Are they garages? Are they <laughs> housing? Like, what are, there's a, that's a lot of space down there. Yeah. <laughs> I know I had uh, the, the cultural um, uh, uh, just guy who everyone consults for their documentary film, but Nelson George on on the podcast uh, a few months ago, and he suggested you know housing the homeless. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't know, you know, if that if that's going to happen, but they, you know, that that's an interesting concept. I mean, I, we could do that, but what is that? Does the city give them a stipend to go right, eat out right. in restaurants? <laughs> 
<laughs> right. A lot, lot to figure out there. So, um, Chef, I want to I want to turn back to uh, just for a minute, the Cecil, because your rise um, during that time. I mean, the, the Cecil made some noise, no question about it. And um, you and Alexander, the cookbook, uh, you know, the James Beard Award, um, best new restaurant. I mean, you're a young guy, man. That's a lot. That's a lot of stuff to be surrounded by. It had to have been a pretty heady time for you. Did you pinch yourself while all that was happening? Did you feel like, man, I just really, you know, landed in the right situation and I'm making the most of it? But how, how did that feel to you while all that uh, was happening around you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, what you just said, landed in the right situation and make, made the most of it 100 percent. I don't think at any point during any of that, I took a moment to like live in the moment. I was like, oh, amazing. Best new restaurant. Yes. That one party we had lived in that moment. And then the next day I was like, okay, let's get back, get to the burner. Come on. You know? And I feel like I should have lived a little bit more in the moment. And I also still to this day are like still upset with like food media, right? Because there's a lot of people that didn't eat in that restaurant. And it's like, well, how can you not, how can you not eat in that restaurant? Shame on you. You know, like, uh, so, um, but yeah, definitely very thankful for that opportunity in my career, that just the whole thing, and then look back and say, hey, make sure I live in these moments of success or gratitude because I'm, I've just been a person to just keep on going. Let's keep on going. Just keep on pushing. But yeah, no, uh, best new restaurant. I was shocked with that. I remember Josh Zersky. He was a big supporter for us there. We wrote wrote a cookbook between Harlem and heaven, uh, which, which we, we, you know, wrote that book in the time that the Cecil was alive, that, that, that Cecil was alive and just cook for a lot of just like great people that came through the doors that I'd never talk about because I just look at everybody as, as the same, like as individuals. So, you know, just some great mom, Wolfgang Puck came there, Greg Coons, Denzel, you know, like I can go down the list of the people that ate in that restaurant. But for me, it was like, okay, did, I remember I met Denzel at one. I was like, hey, I'm just checking. Do you like your food? And he's like, man, yeah, man. Like, come on, let me unpack this place. You don't think nobody likes your food in here? Right. And, uh, and he, that's when he was on Broadway. He would come there, sit in the back. He would eat some guinea hen. He'd get some oxtail dumplings. He'd chop it up with his friends. You know, just some really good moments there uh, that I just never really ever like d- dive deep to talk about just because it was, it, it was there. Well, I would have done some things differently, Brad, 100%. I probably would have never took over the minted. I probably would have said, Hey, Alexander, this should be hundred percent you. And, uh, but you know, I ran both, I was running both locations at one time, which I think got me ready for a field trip and, you know, the multiple tudes of going back mm-hmm. and forth from locations. But there's just things that you look back on where you're like, Hmm, or a lot of it was like, I wish I would have just sat down and celebrated or cried or been happy <laughs> or called somebody, you know, uh, versus, okay, let, let's get back to plating, you know, petite tenderloin. But, but you know, man, I think that that speaks to your nature. You know, you are focused on getting the job done and our, and our industry really requires that, right? Because last night's performance has no bearing on what people are going to experience tonight. And if you don't deliver today. Literally said that to my team. We're doing a major event here in Vegas. And I, that's where I'm talking to you from. And I say, hey guys, we did amazing last night, but we got one more night. They, they not going to remember yesterday. So don't think we good. Right. So yeah. Um, 100%. That's what kind of goes through my mind. I think that's just how I was groomed mm-hmm. uh, for my dad, uh, my parents. But yeah, really, my, well, my dad, my dad used to have a lot of these conversations with me as a kid that I can recall these like little moments where I, you know, I'm like, all right, dad, I get it, man. Okay. All right. 
<laughs> you really, but then you go when you go through life, you're like, oh, hold on, dad said that, you know. So uh, a lot of a lot of those a lot of those things. So uh, it gives me, I'm sure it does for you as a father. I'm also a father. It gives me a lot of pleasure when my when my son says, "Dad, I hear your voice," you know. And uh, I, I think Denzel often uh, repeats this quote: "Do what you have to do so you can do what you want to do." And, you know, that's a good yeah. work ethic. Yes. Right. You're also a really talented writer, man. I read an article that you wrote in Esquire last year when we were all feeling a lot of emotion and trying to find, you know, ways to express it. And one of the things that you talked about, Chef, you said, quote, if you're saying Black Lives Matter, then spend your money at Black businesses. And you went on to say that the culinary world needs to do more than just talk. There needs to be, you know, some real support shown. And among the many things that you touched on, you know, the community at large to step up in support of Black restaurateurs, Black businesses and chefs, and you've become a real prominent voice for diversity. And, you know, since that time, there have been, you know, some reasons to to celebrate back, you know, to the song, Everything Must Change. But we've got Don Davis now, who is the editor in chief at Bon Appetit, changes at the James Beard Foundation to expand, you know, their their diversity. And but still yet a lot more needs to be done. So what are your thoughts about what the hospitality industry and the business communities need to do uh, to step up the support? Yeah, I think we've seen some change, not enough change. I wrote that article. I, I mean, I, I remember I was pacing back and forth in field trip, going back and forth. I was on the phone with Nicole Taylor beautiful writer and just telling her, you know, this is horrific what happened, what's going on. And I'm just watching people put up black squares and talking crazy. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, you don't, you don't do anything. <laughs> you don't even go eat at, you don't even eat at, right? You won't even, you haven't even been to my restaurant. Mm -hmm. What do you tell, you know? So I took a step back and said, the restaurant industry touches so many people that we can actually make change simply you roll into a restaurant and you say, I want to talk to the manager and the manager is a black man or woman that comes to the table. You don't see that. And when you do, when I do, and I know Brad, when you do, you get ecstatic. Well, hold on. Where'd you work before? You know, you, you have this, but the talent of black talent in the hospitality industry has been there from day one. There would be no hospitality industry without black people. Right. And then it became luxurious and glamorous and it became a white person industry. And it's just built on your Eurocentric ways that are just not right. And I wanted, I want to see the industry just step up and make, make it a better place for all. And I just haven't seen it. I don't, when I see pictures of chefs, Michelin star chefs, and all I see is white males. It's like, guys, I know there's kids applying to work here that look like me. I know there's women applying here that want to work for you, that look up to you. That would work really hard for you. And you just don't see it. And it's really just sad. And when I say that, I want people to know, like, I'm not talking about busters and runners and dishwashers. I'm talking about line cooks and sous chefs and general managers and sommeliers and wine stewards and director of operations. And I'm just a firm believer. If you hire the best person, we would never have to have this discussion because you would just be hiring the best people. And I think we see all these changes, Beard Foundation, Bon Appetit. But at the end of the day, who writes the check? Right. And I've been saying this recently. I'm disappointed in a lot of black high net worth people that write checks. They ain't writing checks to black people. Athletes aren't writing checks to us. They are giving shout outs to white owned restaurants and putting butts in seats. 
You know, I'm tired of hearing LeBron and them talk about Carbone and Drake and them saying to go. To, they don't need you to tell them that. They got millions of dollars funded and they don't need you to help them. We, I do. J.J. Johnson, Slutty Vegan, um, the list goes on. We need, we need that dollar. We need them to talk about our restaurants. We need them to help push the culture forward. And that's the the anger and the frustration I get when people talk to me about this. And all these chefs call me, Brad, JJ, can I talk to you off the record? Yeah, no problem. But are you actually going to do something? And don't tell me your best friend's black. That don't mean nothing. <laughs> I hear these things all the time. Oh, my friends are black. Great. But what do you do in your establishment? You don't got nobody black there. You know, yeah. and um, so it's just hard for me. You know, Chef, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little older than you. And, and having started in the restaurant business back in the 70s, you know, fast forwarding to where we are now relative to the point you just made about who's writing the checks. You know, as a community, our buying power has, you know, gone through the roof. And when you look at the salaries and the ball players and the actors and the talent in the entertainment community and you pull that money and you look at where that money ends up flowing to. I'm not mad at Jay-Z if he goes to Nobu, but don't forget Post and Beam when you're in L.A. Don't forget yeah. Chef JJ when you're in New York. Go go to go to catch. I'm not mad at you going to catch, but don't forget about us. You know, but then I read where I think it was Drake or Snoop or somebody just wrote a big fat check for uh, Dave's Hot Chicken. Nashville hot chicken was created by the Prince family, a black family. You know, I, I'm I'm right there with you, man. It's like, but if we keep saying this, brother, if we keep saying this, somebody's going to hear it. Why I give a lot of credit to Chris Paul. He's investing in black businesses across the globe. He is doing the work. He in, internally, he's looking, his team is looking. Why I commend that. But it's it, it's just like, it's sad. I mean, I talked to some of these guys, Brad. One rapper was like, yo, man, I give you $10 million check, but you know, I'm really thinking about investing in Sweet Green. I'm like, Sweet Green don't need your money? What are you talking about? Give Imagine if you gave me 10 million and who you are, there'd be, we'd be you, 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 the impact you would have would be insane. So yeah, I keep talking about it and I hope to see it. That's why for me, working for Alexander, working for Dick Parsons was bigger than the food. It was it was a black man that had all this money investing in a restaurant with his friends and they had this idea. It was in Harlem. It was in a historical building. It was bigger than the food. And a lot of people don't give them their credit for that. I think they, they spent $7 million, Brad, to bring that restaurant back and go through all the loopholes and everything to make that happen. So, yeah, I mean, I hope to see Drake maybe a, and, and maybe somebody go to Prince's and say, hey, can we get you expanding? Oh, you need help with infrastructure? Hold on. Let me call my guy up. They 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 own, he know, he's a director of op or vice president of Levy. They'll, I'll get them to partner with you and I'll write a check and they'll run it to help you. You know, it just drives me insane. Why I pushing so hard to be a prominent force in this space so that other people that come next can figure it out or have a better chance. Well, I would encourage you, man, to keep, you know, keep your voice heard. You know, it, I think it's you have a bigger stage than I had when I was starting and the person who comes after you will have a bigger stage than you do. So it's a relay, man. And, it, and it's really important to keep that uh, keep in that race. And to the point, you know, of, you know, you not just talk to talk, but you walk the walk. Recently, you know, a friend of both of ours, Marcus Samuelson, did the food at the Met Gala. And I love your cookout. It's a, a weekly 
weekly column, that uh, newsletter that you publish. And it's really cool. It's written kind of in your voice, your style. I, I really love the way that it's written. And the day after the Met Gala, there was a picture, a photo of some of the food that was served there. And uh, Kiki Palmer, who was one of the um, I guess she was invited actually, actually by Vogue, uh, which I'm sure they had conversations with her afterwards. But I don't know if she was aware that Marcus was a chef. But you made a really good point, JJ. And, and as people who have worked in our communities and know that sometimes we can be our own worst critics, you came to the defense of Marcus like right away. You know, and you said, put some respect on this man's name. Just talk a little bit about what struck you there and, and why you felt the need to say something. You know, that, it really hurt me. This is this man's livelihood. This isn't, this isn't like some, I'm an actor today. I'm an influencer tomorrow. This is somebody that supports his family, his employees through food. And something like that could ruin your career. People won't come to your restaurant. It's not going away. And I'm like, hold on here. This is a guy that's been cooking in some of the best places in the world. He cooked for President Barack Obama. What are you talking? And first of all, when did you become the food critic? Do you know what the effort is to do a dinner like this? Do you know all the moving parts? And it was just more or less for me again, Brad, my reference on black on black crime. And then later on, I was really hoping Kiki would have been like, hey, guys, Marcus, I'm going to come pull up. To Red Rooster, I'm going to bring my friends. I apologize. That was out of line and made up for it, but it's just still out there. And you're talking about somebody that paved the way. This is somebody that helped bring a Red Rooster in Harlem. Other people would never have opened a restaurant like that in Harlem. People followed. And he worked really, he just worked really hard. I know a lot of us might have different opinions about Marcus out in the world, but it just struck a nerve. And I look up to a guy like Marcus and it was just like, it's not right because one day that might be me. And if anything, I would expect you in the room to be like, oh, it's a black chef. Chill. I might feel that way, but chill. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I'll talk to my friends in a group chat about it, but chill. Because if it was anybody else, if it was Daniel Hum, Daniel Ballou, Carbone, they would have been saying somebody, oh, this was the best thing I ever had. And we know it wouldn't have been. And so that's how I look at it. It's just not an even playing field. And there's also just not enough of us that get that, to even get that opportunity, cook at the Mecca, curate the menu. It's not just not enough of us that even get, I mean, and I love Wolfgang, but Wolfgang owns that market, right? He does all those things. I'm sure Wolfgang called Marcus and said probably something like, hey man, that happened to me back in the day. Madonna took a picture, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure, but it wasn't all over the media like that. It wasn't. And it's still going. And I don't know how I, I, Marcus is much nicer than me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but let's, you know, we can distill as we're wrapping up. But uh, I just want to distill that down a little bit more locally to, you know, us as as operators. And, you know, you mentioned what qualifications she would have had to have been a food critic. Of course, none. But, you know, to Yelp these days is, you know, just requires, you know, the, the desire to do so. And, you know, I, I just wanted to get your thought on the, the Yelp culture. And as we're trying to build these brands as a young, you know, chef like he was trying to build his brand and all the hard work that goes in it. You mentioned a brother that, you know, had the issue with the rice. But you got to speak to him one on one. And my issue is if, if there's an owner, if there's a manager, there's a responsible person, most of these independently owned restaurants like you operate, there's somebody there who cares rather than yelp and say something negative publicly, ask to speak to someone 
especially in a Chef JJ restaurant where you know the owner is a black man. You know, let, let's work with one another rather than, you know, tear one another down. You have any thought on that? You know, I use Yelp as a vessel to help us be to on the positive note to like look at the negative review, highlight what's there. Okay. And look at it. Is there a consistency level of it? At Filter, we respond to everybody, good or bad. If you go there, you'll look, you'll see a response. We respond to everybody. I think people just need to think about it a little bit more like, okay, write a review. You had a really bad experience, but can you email first? Can you call first? Now, let's say you don't get the right response. Let's say somebody treats you badly, then take it there. But sometimes I read reviews and I'm like, hold on. You writing a review because the bag, the food popped open in the bag. It made a mess. I don't control the delivery guy, but no problem. Just call us. We're going to send you new food because, because when we, when we, we're going to reach out to you, we're going to send you a gift card. We're going to try to recover you. And I, I just want, I just want people to really think about it. It, it, We're all, it's a people business. We're, we're in the business for you and we want to give you good, good service, good food, be delicious. And sometimes we're human. We might just drop the ball that day. Um, and, and independent owner operators, large companies, they're going to respond and come back uh, and they want to make it right. Absolutely, man. All right. Before I let you go, Clio TV, Just Eats. When can we find you? And just tell me a little bit about the show. Oh, so Just Eats by Chef JJ is on its uh, third season. I call it Kitchen Table Talk. I bring a guest on. We talk about all different types of things. I cook food. It's fun, vibrant, and um, I think it's something different than what's on food television right now. Uh, and and what I love about it as a, as a as somebody giving me my first shot on TV, it's a network. It's a black owned network. Uh, which makes it really special. And nobody's telling me you can't cook that. Nobody doesn't know what that is. It's like, oh, you want to do collard green lasagna? Great, JJ, you're the expert. You know, um, the production company's powerhouse production, Rochelle Brown. She's been in the game a long time. So having her there and her team, um, and I'm just really thankful for it. You can, clutch, you can catch Cleo, you can catch Just Eats on Cleo TV now on any network of Verizon, DirecTV, Spectrum, or any local provider. I don't know what station it is in your in your area. Most of the time, it's a higher up station. New York is like 186, uh, but it's a good time. And um, I'm very thankful uh, to be on, on television cooking food that I like to cook. Man, that sounds fantastic. Well, wishing you all the best. I can't wait to uh, my next trip to New York and try that dish that sounds like crab rangoon. Man, that, that's you know, that's right in my wheelhouse, brother. I can't wait for that. But I uh, just wanted to thank you, man, for joining me today. I really appreciated you on the show. Thanks for having me, Brad. Uh, really great conversation here. So this part of the show we call How We Move with my dear friend, the lovely Ambassador Shabazz. What's happening? Hello there. Well, that How was, was that like for a- you, Chef uh, J.J. Johnson, an energetic, uh, vibrant uh, young brother, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I recall the early days when Richard Parsons, um, who was absolutely dear friend, kept telling me about this Harlem endeavor that he was going to re- uh, revive, you know, uh, Menton's he kept talking about and then opening this Cecil as a restaurant. Pure excitement. Uh, Harlem was in its flux at the time. And based on his diligence, I just knew it was going to come to life. I start to hear bits and pieces, you know, it would just flood him with with joy. And it's like a reclamation for him of his own life before joining the ranks of all the corporate giants. And the last time I was at the Cecil um, was for dinner following the Apollo's premiere of uh, the Nina Simone documentary, What Happened, Miss Simone? And doing all of those visits, 
you know, one couldn't miss Alexander Smalls, uh, who was always very present um, in the restaurant. But there was this hidden jewel. And that was your guest, Chef J.J. Johnson. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I didn't meet him during that time either. You know, I've known uh, Alexander for a long time. But, uh, you know, to his credit, he handpicked uh, Chef J.J. And I and I think he um, he certainly uh, showed that he has some foresight and uh, good taste when it comes to talent. Well, and and talent is he. I mean, notwithstanding a quiet force, but, you know, and I, I certainly followed him per his, you know, his career and his publications and, and the like. But until your interview, I had never heard his voice, his vision, his dedication, and moreover, his conviction. I mean, he certainly had a view about all of the topics you referenced, just whether it's the ground up and the keeping things in its simplistic and raw capacity and leaving it to the food, being dedicated to the community that's dedicated to him, the insistence on making sure that Black chefs and owner operators were are in the loop, which is often overlooked despite one's own notoriety. I appreciate his, his voice on behalf of the broad spectrum. You know, young, yet very intentional. It was great to hear his voice. Yeah, I agree on all those points. And, you know, it, it was also interesting, Ambassador, to hear him uh, talk about, with some degree of frustration, the um, the challenge, we'll say, that we have as entrepreneurs of color, enticing uh, entrepreneurs with means. In some cases, we're talking about celebrities and, and high net worth individuals, but getting them to back our businesses and, you know, and the challenge that that we have with that. What what were your thoughts when you when you heard well, that, that segment? It's across the board. I think everybody needs to be educated. So some folks are reached. So those notables that are investing are being reached by people who want to find collaboration. So we also have to know how to represent our voice and not think someone's just going to come to us. So does LeBron know about the list of opportunities that he could back and would find some natural kinship with or two? So I think it's work on both sides. Um, I certainly understood it. I know I know the frustration when you're doing everything, wearing all the hats like I've watched you do for decades. It's hard to also remember that point as well. And you think as hard as you're working that it's enough to make the noise. And it's really how do you get those persons in there and really introduce who you are and why they should come to the table? You've been really brilliant in, ha- in strategizing not just any investor. You bring in folks that are like notable to the public, but it's the character of investor. You don't want anybody's money. You want to say, for whom would my establishment resonate? What would make this a great deal? And so I think if I'm a person who's from New York, circulated, knew about Minton's and Cecil all this time, but never heard the passion and voice of Chef J.J. Johnson, it means we have to make sure that all of those voices are out there. Because I think he makes the case. Yeah. He's very articulate about it. He's clear. He's the age group of some of these young um, brothers and sisters who are in, investing. But do they? Is the is the information getting to them? And we have to do that work. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think though, you know, too, that the um, 
you know, we're talking about in terms of scale, that's really changed in yes. the, you know, the 30 plus years that I've been in the business where, you know, we used to round up investors in, you know, $25,000, $50,000, yeah. you know, get, get a little piece and get to eat. And it was fun for them to, <laughs> to have and do. Yeah. But we this is we're talking about something different here now. Yeah. And also the um, the kind of money. That uh, we'll stay on athletes for a moment, but the you know the the some of the more visible NBA guys, for instance. I mean, the kind of money that's they're generating now is is really generational wealth, right? And you know the challenges that we've had in securing capital, not just to open, but to sustain and grow that's and create that's legacy. That's the capital that we're talking about now. So these concepts, like a JJ's uh, field trip, for instance is a really sound concept. And if it does get financial backing, that thing has legs. So the thing is, is when I listened to him, I then wanted to know what is that playbook? I think there's new language. You, You did it at a time when we could count on friendship and fellowship and everybody can do their part. It is a new day. It is a new dollar. And how do we go about stepping up so that that is language in a way that doesn't read the frustration but absolutely the merit in order to be backed, supported, sustained, and um, have a collaboration. One thing I don't want to see is someone that someone that works as hard as you do or as, as he has be bought out to become the smaller partner in their own establishment. Right. Yeah, I know that that, that can happen. Um, but I think, you know, we're mindful of that and there are enough advisors around to uh, for those entrepreneurs who aren't as experienced in the realm of business. There are people that, uh, you know, that you can consult with people like me. Uh, I would certainly keep a young entrepreneur out of trouble. I was just going to ask you uh, that when you listen to him, knowing what you went through at, you know, half his age now, just from the beginning all the way to now, what was it like for you? I mean, I've sat at tables with you when you were scoping and projecting about new paradigm shifts and tones and colors and feelings and sensibilities. And so when you listen to to a young brother like him kind of embark upon that path, how do you feel as the veteran? (laughs) <laughs> certainly feel like a, a veteran. You know, what what, I, what occurs to me, Ambassador, is how important it is to be a student of history. And, um, you know, we have Earl the Pearl Monroe upcoming on a podcast. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to yes. that. Uh, very excited to have Earl. And, you know, I'm visiting a time with him in Philadelphia growing up and then ultimately attending school in Winston-Salem, pre-civil rights. And he talks about, you know, being on a bus going from Philly down to Winston-Salem for the first time and seeing black folks in the fields picking cotton. Once they crossed uh, the border of Washington, D.C., him and his friend who he was traveling with had to move to the back of the train. You know, when you when you remember how that was not that long ago, (laughs) most of us now remember Earl playing in the NBA, yet this was his experience as a young man. So when we really start to understand and look at the scope of where we were, where we've come through, what our parents did to get us here, and what our generation did in terms of the uh, the relay 
in this race and who has the baton now and what should happen with that. That's the context that I kind of view this or the lens, I should say, that I view this through. Well, and then the history and what connects it so that where they are where they are, they don't feel the frustration of having to think that they have to start from scratch, that there really are lessons and we have to figure out how to play that baton that reach that chain link so that the wisdom of those that precede them is certainly warranted and regarded and respected, as well as us being able to endow, support the younger ones coming forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. So I think a little we've, we've got some stops to we're going to be making in New York. But you know, that that black rice salmon. Yeah, oh, no. And if he no. has a little Sorel to drink to wash that down yeah, with man, right. he's got me for lunch. Right, man. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I smiled listening to it because of number one, his dedication to the region and his insistence on merging and telling a story through rice, you know, which I, you know, grew up. I don't know if everyone's household was like mine, where rice was kind of a a real staple. And with all those global flavors that uh, we were surrounded by, I was certainly one who could rock some rice. And my, <laughs> my, my sisters, I come from a big family, so we always cook, cooked in bulk. And my sisters will say, I know what we're having, at least rice, right? But it was all the rice surprises I would do. <laughs> so give me one. What's, what's uh, if you were going to throw a little pot of something together, you know, Ooh, what, 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 what might find its way into that pot? Well, a lot of things because I don't, rice is not just rice. It's not just, and I don't do that quick minute stuff. Not at all. I need rice to actually be the thing that you hum while you're, while you're eating. So whether it's Caribbean rice, Middle Eastern style or Spanish style, like paella or jollof, all any kind of rice that has its own flavor in it, and you can add whatever you want. Um, to it. So, you know, in honor of all that, whether it's a millet, a rice, a couscous, a fonio, or the like, you know, I would love for people to go online and look up maklube. Maklube, it, um, it's an Arabic word. And if I were to spell it phonetically, it would be M A K H L O O B. E-H, makhlube. And it's an upside down rice dish. Oh my God, it's fun and creative. And whether you're doing it yourself or you're getting rid of all the things in your refrigerator, it's really cool. And you just gather all your seasonings together. And I will go over that another time because it's lengthy, but all your spices and, and savory seasonings and veggies and lamb or chicken, depending on what kind of meat you have and the fixings. And I like them in stew size bites, you know, um, comfort food size. And then you saute all your herbs and spices and add the veggies and the meats. And you make sure that that's all sauteed really, really, really well. You know, so the meat is falling off the bone. That gurgling that you hear, that's that's my stomach. <laughs> You're funny. No. And so you can see my face, my cheeks, are because I don't get to cook that much anymore. But just the process of it is really therapeutic for me. So when you do all that, you make sure it's really well done. And then you pour in a cup, you know, the water and the rice and you let it simmer but it's all down at the good stuff is at the bottom. And what you do is at the very end, there are many exotic ways to do it, but this is just that quick way. Once that rice gets to the top and you can pour more of that, that um, stock on it with that's flavored and everything, just to make sure it's juicy. Then you put a plate 
let it sit a while, let it cool. You put a plate on top and then you turn it over. And all that stuff that was on the bottom is drizzling down mine. Oh, now see, there you go. So you can make, you know, gourmet style, you can do it in different ways, but when you dig into it, all that good stuff comes out and the flavors. So depending on how good your hand is, there's all kinds of great ways to do it. You can layer it like a lasagna and then, then finish it so that it's pretty. You can layer the bottom of the pot pan, like with your tomatoes or your, your courgette. What's a courgette? Not to think, get back in English, uh, zucchini or eggplant or whatever. And then you can put, you can start to layer it in that pot before you put the rice in the water, just so you can design it. But it, all together, it's like that one pot rice that when you turn it over and the good stuff starts dripping down. And when, and when is this happening? <laughs> you said you when you all get the house ready, I'll come okay, down. Okay, this is Sunday food. night. This is our <laughs> Sunday night family dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm rolling with that. Ambassador right. Shabazz, how we move? We're moving into some rice dishes. I can feel that yeah, coming. Yeah, we are, right. <laughs> Good to see you. Well, you too. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.